Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Carl Alomar, who is the managing partner of M13, a consumer-focused venture fund based out of New York and LA. Carl is also an experienced entrepreneur and operator who's helped grow multiple businesses to more than $100 million in revenue. And in this episode, we go through a wide variety of topics, including how M13 works with their portfolio companies, what their deal flow looks like, why Carl even decided to go from the operating side into venture capital in the first place, some of the things that Carl did to help DigitalOcean grow to more than $250 million in annual recurring revenue, what he's done to scale the team at DigitalOcean when they went through a culture crisis as well, losing 30 to 40% of their engineering team and they had to do an entire culture reset. We talk through that side of things as well. Also, Carl's advice around decision-making and the importance of being decisive as a leader and what people who are interested in getting into venture capital should be thinking about before they do. As always, the show notes are at discogrind.com slash podcast, where you have links to everything mentioned in this episode. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Carl Alomar, managing partner of M13. Carl, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Doing well, and great to be talking to you again. I know we've chatted before on another podcast. And uh, for people who maybe aren't as familiar with M13, it'd be great to if you can just give a, a kind of an overview of what M13 uh, is as a venture firm. Yeah, sure. Um, we are a uh, $190 million venture fund uh, based out of LA and New York. Um, we really focus on consumer technology businesses. Um, uh, basically, you know, our thesis is really centered around how technology is evolving consumer behavior over the next 10 years and looking at, you know, those evolutions and how we can be a part of those journeys. Um, we tend to invest uh, mainly in kind of series A or late seed, um, you know, two to seven million dollar type checks. But we also do have a feeder program where we like to work with entrepreneurs that are at an earlier stage of their businesses that we really believe in. And, and we'll do smaller checks and, you know, the half million dollar range for those. Um, we really pride ourselves, uh, in being very differentiated in that, you know, we are all, you know, uh, originally, um, operators. That's where we come from. Yeah. And I think our, our main focus has always been to think about, you know, even when, when we started this fund to think about, you know, what is it that a founder really needs from their investors and what is it that, um, you know, founders really need to actually, uh, be more successful and having been a founder, and a, and a kind of startup and growth company executive for 20 plus years, you know, there's some really obvious holes. There's, there's plenty of situations where no matter how good you are as a founder, you either don't have the resources or you don't, you just don't have the knowledge or experience to address certain problems that end up just becoming, you know, big delays and issues in the business. And moreover, you don't always have kind of the right team in the early stages of the business just because of lack of resources to really optimize your strategies, optimize your decision-making uh, and things of that nature, and even execute in some cases on those things. And so we really wanted to build a solution that solves for that. And what we ultimately decided to do, which is very unique to us, is um, you know, take on investment over and above any fund management fees we have, you know, give up economics in, in our business, yeah. specifically to focus on building a, a team of incredibly talented executives who've all been in growth companies, all had multiple 
uh, experiences, multiple success stories, and really focused in kind of key areas that we know these growth companies need support and help and experience on. And um, I would say the team that we have, you know, would be the envy of of any growth company in terms of <laughs> an executive team, which is yeah. amazing to have. And working with these people is really incredible, just the knowledge and the skill sets. And, you know, our founders really get access to all of that and work really hand in hand. And, you know, they bring our team into, you know, their projects and their strategies and their and their problems. And we're also able to proactively kind of understand what's happening in their businesses and figure out if there are areas where, you know, we can be helpful and we can help the businesses avoid problems that they may have otherwise confronted if uh, if they didn't have the you know the visibility of the experience to, to recognize that so um all in all you know the core business is a fund but the underlying differentiation the underlying value is really in the skill sets and capabilities of our operating team and, and how we work with founders to really focus and kind of obsess about um what we can do to help them be as successful as possible yeah, it definitely makes M13 stand apart from from other venture firms. And that was a huge reason why I obviously wanted to, to chat about M13 and your journey as well. And, and just to go a little bit deeper on your working with founders. So, you know, take me through what it's like for a founder who's working with M13, you already, you know, invested in them. Like, what does that look like on a, you know, week to week, month to month basis? If a company is working with M- M13, like, how does that work more tangibly? Uh, you know, how I know you're very hands on, but how does that kind of work with these companies? Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because it's a a very delicate uh, approach. You know, it is not you, our business; it is the founder's business, and we <laughs> always have to respect that. And we never want to be in a position where we're trying to be overwhelming or pushy. Like at the end, they were just there as a supporting mechanism. But it really all starts with understanding our full portfolio. So we, as an organization, you know, meet every week and we talk about our whole portfolio. And every member of the team, both investing and operating side of what we do. You know, we call our operating team the propulsion team. So every member of our propulsion team and every member of the investing team understands the nuances of every company in our portfolio pretty intimately because we talk about them every week. So it all starts with really understanding their businesses. And I think a lot of founders will tell you that in the relationships they've had with their investors, often apart from perhaps the lead investor, you know, there's just not that much knowledge or understanding of the business across, you know, the organizations that that they've uh, they've partnered with in that regard, and so we really pride ourselves in our ability to truly understand the businesses and the founders that we're working with. From there, um, you know, we we kick off every relationship with what we call a welcome meeting, which is a real kind of uh, strategic kind of deep dive brainstorm with the founding team on all the challenges they they think they're going to face and and the things that right in front of them and just really getting to understand them and how they work and how the dynamic would work. And then from there, you know, uh, over a periodic basis, we identify areas where we can be helpful. We're not going to be hands-on with every founder every day. Right. Um, there's always going to be moments or points that there is a critical action or critical execution that they're trying to get through that we know we can be incredibly helpful with. And so those are the situations where we connect with the founders, connect with members of their team, go through the strategies, prepare some strategies, you know, just help them through the thinking and potentially through the execution of those of those programs. So it becomes kind of just a fluid part of communication. We're connected to all of them on Slack. You know, they can reach out to us at any time. Sometimes we'll reach out to them proactively. 
And it's just uh, kind of just being an extension of their team is, is kind of how we want it to feel and, and a resource that they can take advantage of as they need it and when they need it. Absolutely. And uh, that taking a step back then from that, obviously, this, this is when the founders are working with you. I'm curious about your, your sourcing, your deal flow, because you are such a value add investor. How does that impact uh, your deal flow and, you know, investor, other, other investors giving you deals and even just founders wanting to have M13 on their cap table? Yeah, that's such a, such a great, um, you know, it's a great question, but it's, it's just such a great feeling to see how we've evolved as a brand. So we launched this fund about a year and a half ago. We started investing. And at the time, you know, no one really, no one really knew who we were. That you know, <laughs> our name was probably too similar to Salvadorian uh, cartel that everybody was joking about and comparing us to. But at the end of the day, it was always like an introduction. It was always, this is who we are. This is our philosophy. This is how we think. At this point, you know, we're pretty, our brand is pretty well, you know, uh, recognized out there now. People know who we are. And we have seen, um, you know, a real trend of both other venture firms reaching out to us, wanting us to partner into deals with them, understanding the value that we bring into the, into the relationship, as well as founder um, references and, um, you know, founders coming to us and just saying, hey, you know, we we hear we love your model. We know how you're working. We really feel we could use your your help, and we get a lot of very direct inbound, either referrals or just direct unsolicited interest in in us as a firm because of the value proposition that we're offering. And so, I think that's that's evolved significantly. We obviously do the traditional things in terms of um, you know research and and market outreach to build our funnel, um, but a significant amount of our deal flow really comes from the networks and the relationships we've built and the trust that we've built across those. And Carl, for people who are definitely going to be wondering, you have all this operating experience. You've you've been across a number of companies, co-founded, uh, CEO and uh, COO. Why venture for you, Carl? I am uh, not a young bud any longer. I don't necessarily. <laughs> I mean, I admire so much and I was one of them, but I admire so much the energy and the passion and the, and the commitment that, that a founder puts into what they're building. And it just, the, the years it takes to get to a place of validation and, and truly seeing value out of what you've committed your life to. And, um, I've done that a number of times. I've enjoyed it. I've loved it. I've had great success with it, luckily for me. And, uh, and I think that I've learned a, a huge amount. And, you know, when faced with the opportunity to go and do it all over again or, or take that knowledge and work with other inspiring young, you know, founders and, and entrepreneurs and kind of, um, you know, aspiring talent, I, I love the, the passion of that. I, I would love to take all the things that I know and help other people on a wider scale across a diversified portfolio rather than, you know, going and locking myself away again for the next three to five years building the next one. That's, that's where I am in my life. That's where I, what I feel very good about. Um, I do think that when you're in a business in some ways, it does blink at you a little bit. You have to be so focused on that business that you don't necessarily see the full horizon and the full world around you. Yeah. And uh, and every time that I do step out of, of a business that I've built or I've been a part of, I look up and I just see all these amazing things that uh, you know that I hadn't been paying attention to, and I, I feel like that's where I want to live right now. That's I really want to be inspired, and I want to be inspired, you know, with 
differing challenges on you know over a long period of time and that's what this offers me so it's exciting to me i really yeah. enjoy it yeah and and from these you know multiple companies and now now with m13 as well I, one thing i know i saw on one of your profiles or something was around this advice you had gotten about you know build what you love and that was something that struck me as i saw that i, I wanted to dig into that a little bit I, i'm curious as to how in the past you decided what companies to start because you've started a number of them now and for other founders yeah. or other ambitious people who are trying to start things like for you how did you decide you know what businesses you want to start throughout your career yeah um i think love is not just limited to you know the product you're selling i think love is the culture and the environment and the partners and kind of everything that surrounds what you're doing and what i found you know i've Taken, I built my first company, started in 97, sold it in 2000, but I, I stuck around for another year until 2001. Then I did an MBA, so I took a period of time off. Uh, and then my next company, even though I was dabbling with different things, officially my next company really started in 2005. Uh, I sold that in early 2010. Again, started dabbling with a lot of different things, but officially I started the DigitalOcean in 2013. So there's always been like this good gap between um, the things that I've been playing with versus the things that I've committed to. And the reason is because, you know, I don't think you ever know that you love something the day you kind of walk in. You can be excited and passionate about an idea. You can, you know, that's for me. For other people, they may have a kind of a very clear focus. Someone might say, you know, I just love food so much that I have to build in food. And I get <laughs> that. For me, it's, it's more just like... Um, I have to love my environment. I have to love the people I'm working with. I have to be inspired and I have to feel like I can learn and grow. And, and if I commit to an experience that I'm going to live in for the next five years or more, then that's an experience that I want to really be in love with. And I want to go every day to work excited and loving what I'm doing, even on the hard days. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, my business has been very diverse. Like my, First business was a video technology business. My second one was a fintech. My third one was cloud infrastructure. So very different businesses, but the common commonality between them is just amazing team, amazing partnerships, great you know, um, great energy environment, great culture, and you know, just being in a place where you just feel like you're excited to go to work every day. And um, as I said, with a lot of people, that is going to be probably much more vertically focused, and. The problem I find is when people are out there just to make the money and they're yeah. not really thinking about, am I really going to love this every day? Then they're going to either burn out or they're going to frankly fail because they're not going to go that extra mile. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of problems with uh, people just going out there and thinking, I'm going to start a business because I'm going to become a rich entrepreneur. That's, that's never going to happen. Start a business because you build, you love what you do every day and you're going to do it to the best of your ability and you're going to be excited about it. You're going to drive it. And if you do that, the likelihood of your ability to build something special is, is way, way higher. And, uh, and that's really what I mean by, you know, build what you love, focus on things that you love. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with right now, M13, you're clearly building a venture firm to help startups. I, I read that you were, you were helping other companies too, and kind of dabbling between China export finance. And before you, you know, joined digital ocean, take me through the, those few years in between there. What, what were you doing? How are you kind of working with companies at that time? Yeah, I, um, I, I was working with a number of different people, um, you know, through that two, three year period, uh, 
I, as soon as I uh, exited China Export Finance, um, I kind of reconnected with some of the tech relationships I had before. I pretty quickly got involved in a couple of boards, um, sat as advisor in a couple of different businesses. Again, with people that I really liked, people that are, you know really inspired me. And then pretty much immediately, I was getting a lot of um, other entrepreneurs wanting to pull me into the businesses they were thinking of starting. And I would, from time to time, even ideate myself and create kind of decks on concepts and kind of share them with people and get that point of view. And over a two, three year period, I, I put a little bit of money to work here and there, just some seed investments of my own. I advised, I sat on boards, you know, I got slightly more involved in some companies, slightly less involved in other companies, helped some companies raise money and and kind of push to the next phase of their business. Um, but it wasn't until I kind of sat down with Ben from DigitalOcean and uh, uncovered kind of the metrics and the numbers and the, the you know, consumer or the customer kind of sentiment that I was seeing, you know, them achieve at such an early stage and in their business that I realized that there's something really special here. And so yeah, um, that was the point at which I decided, you know what, I think this is something I could really commit to. So another thing that I've always kind of set for myself, just kind of subconsciously is everything I've done, I've always wanted the next thing to kind of uh, be bigger and, and, <laughs> you know, really because I just wanted to be more challenging. Like yeah. for me, it's, you know, my first company did pretty well, but we, we came, you know, I exited right after the bubble burst and there was, you know, challenges in that. And then the fintech company grew to 140 million in revenue. So it was pretty solid business, pretty meaningful over three continents, offices around the world. And then, you know, I did a lot of different things, but nothing really struck me as, oh, this would blow, you know, the fintech business out the water. When I, when I met Ben at DigitalOcean and I started working with them for a couple of months, helping them through the process of closing their first round of investment. I, as I learned more and more, I started and as I helped them build out their strategy and their model and like, this is how the numbers should grow. And here's what the metrics tell us. You started immediately saying, wow, this, this thing could really be much bigger than what I did with China Export Finance. And so that's what really inspired me. And that's what made it really, really exciting. And just to even go through 1013, like as I was coming out of DigitalOcean, I understood that DigitalOcean hopefully will, will go public soon and, and you know, has a great future ahead of it. But I understood that um, was I going to go find the next DigitalOcean or was I going to look at an opportunity to work across, you know, build a, a really disruptive venture firm that has a portfolio that, you know, at some point we can look back and say this would rival any portfolio in the market. And, and that to me was kind of that next step of achieving something beyond what I'd achieved at DigitalOcean. Yeah. And going from business to business, and it's been incredible. I and mean, the revenue numbers you kind of just mentioned of these companies growing to that scale, a lot goes into that. I want to start with DigitalOcean to talk a little bit more about that. When you when you came in and you're talking to Ben, you talked about, you know, you said there are metrics and strategies and models around that you thought could be great. Like, can you dive a little bit deeper into, you know, when you when you start at DigitalOcean, what are, what are some of the first things when you had started there, like that you did implement to yeah. put in place, you know, to help this company that grew to over 240, 250 million in ARR. Like yeah. what are some of those things initially you put in place? Yeah. So, um, yeah. And they're bigger than that now, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> but you build a machine that just kind of self propagates and continues to grow, which is really exciting. But, uh, you know, the first thing was, um, you know, I came in and, and, uh, I was actually introduced to Ben by, um, I ventures, which was the firm that was ultimately, you know, given them the term sheet was ultimately going to be the their first external investor. 
And um, they wanted me to go in and just kind of help look at the business and kind of, you know, validate that the business had solid foundations, business foundations, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, young business, young entrepreneurs, they really didn't have like a solid financial model. They really hadn't built out kind of the foundational components of the business. So I really focused in those early days on, okay, let me learn everything I need to know about this business to help build out what their financial model and ultimate strategy looks like. Like, what could this business be? So you started just looking at the early engagement metrics, growth metrics, viral coefficients, all those things around what they had been seeing in those first two or three months since launch. And we just began to roll those out. And as we rolled those out, you could see that the numbers just built upon themselves. And and it really was not a stretch to see a company getting to 100 million revenue in you know three four years two three four years um the interesting thing is the model we built out back in 2013 uh ultimately hit our numbers on the nose for the next three years so 13 14 15 (laughs) the numbers that we had modeled literally almost to the dollar were pretty much exactly what we booked in revenue for those first three years. And then obviously beyond that, we, we were continuing to model future years, uh, et cetera. But, but the, the idea being that I think we understood the dynamics of the business so well, and we understood uh, you know, the levers that were in hand to grow customers and to build revenue in such a way that actually it really, it played out exactly how we imagined. And we, we ended up you know, really, really executing on the business. Um, so the first thing was for me was just understand the business and model it out so we understand exactly what our levers are and exactly how we can build an audience and a and a uh, you know revenue base for this company and that's the first thing we did as soon as we did that you know that was that was the if you want to point at an individual thing that really convinced me of the opportunity that exercise was really the thing that got me most excited in terms of the opportunity yeah. But then what we realized is, as we're looking at the numbers, like, oh, my God, this is a lot of infrastructure. <laughs> are, they, <laughs> are, are we going to be able to actually service customers? And so one of the first things I took on was um, the infrastructure operation. And uh, we started thinking about how do we fund this infrastructure? How do we build it out? How do we think about it on a global basis? And from there, you know, where we had, you know, a couple of people working out of a couple of data centers, just kind of stacking, racking and stacking, um, you know, these servers, we built a full operational organization that ended up being, I think by the time I left, maybe somewhere between 60 and 80 people that ran all of DevOps and all of our infrastructure globally. And, uh, and we built out into 13 data centers in eight countries and 20,000 servers and, you know, just uh, a pretty significant volume. And and that was, um, I mean, that was probably an area of the business that I was most passionate about. But I just really, really enjoyed building that organization. Kind of was responsible for a lot of different aspects of, of the operation from time to time. But that was definitely one of the areas that was a highlight for me. Uh, and so those were the things I started with. And then from there, we started focusing on how do you actually build a company? What are the functioning? We need data. We need a service organization. We need a customer success organization. We need you know, to build out our FP&A and our, our finance organization, you know, lots of different aspects of, of the business that we built out piece by piece. And you mentioned some of those levers, Carl, could you go into just like, what were some of those levers that you knew you could kind of pull for growth? Because it's, I mean, it's pretty impressive to obviously take a company to hundreds of millions of revenue, but for people who are, you know, running their startups now, and maybe already have a small startup, who you know, they're, they're, 
they have a decent amount of revenue, but they're really trying to scale. I mean, what were some levers you pulled or what things you did to really get to that level of scale with DigitalOcean? It's very different for every business. So I don't think you can take one set of levers and say, oh, yeah, I can you know, copy and paste this. Um, right. I think I, I was lucky. I cannot tell you that I sat there and created these levers. Um, I walked into an organization that, you know, you know, the genius of the founding team at DO is that they had already figured out how to get into the hearts and minds of, of their customers. And that had nothing to do with me. That was there. That's what got me excited about joining. Yeah. And so they had built a pretty solid content engine. They had built um, a really great like dev developer relations type operation. They had built a really engaging and kind of welcoming brand. They had some basic philosophies on service and on how to talk to engineers that was right on point. Like they had a lot of these things in hand. And what that created is that created a, a set of behaviors um, from customers that ranged from how does someone come in, start with a single, what we call droplets, a single virtual machine, and expand from there to build a real business on top of DigitalOcean, which ultimately generated a significant amount of revenue to DigitalOcean. So, you know, some of our biz biggest customers today doing millions of dollars of, of spend on, on the infrastructure started as, you know, $100, $200 a month customers. Wow. Um, and so when I talk about levers, I talk about really getting under the covers and understanding the behavior of the customers and then modeling that out to recognize First of all, where do they come from? So what is content doing for us? And as we build our content engine, how is that actually enhancing and growing in terms of top of funnel? Uh, where, how does referral play? Uh, how can we lever referral? How can we drive more referral? And, and what does a referred customer behave like? And then out of every cohort we build, how do we segment that out between the people that are just playing around, people we refer to as hackers, uh, people who are building businesses, people who have existing infrastructure and businesses that they want to scale, you know, different categories of user. And by understanding the trends, you're suddenly able to model it out and suddenly able to uh, kind of just see where the, you know, where the continued revenue opportunity comes from. So, uh, you know, as we began, our levers were really about, okay, what are the top of funnel components that bring people in? And what are the characteristics of the people that come in within those levers, within those particular top of funnel components? And if we make sure we get the right mix, then we can predict how that group will grow over time. As long as the product and the business does what it's promising to do, yeah. we, shouldn't, we shouldn't see a disruption in this behavior. And that's why we were able to model out so accurately for the first three years. Um, because we just really somehow really understood the customer and really understood how they behaved. And Carl, with that experience too, obviously in scaling, there's a number of different things to think about. On the people side, can you take me through more of like the team and, and scaling the team along the way as well with DigitalOcean? Yeah, um, I will say, you know, we, we, um, we definitely made mistakes and we definitely did things that were great. So I think in the early days of DigitalOcean, one of the biggest mistakes is we scaled our engineering team as quickly as possible towards like a hundred engineers between <laughs> DevOps and, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, developers and other, you know, other types of engineering skill sets. Um, we made the mistake 
early on and it was a battle internally around how we do this but ultimately what we did is we just went on a mass hiring spree we raised money we were doing really well we were growing and uh, and i think the general sentiment was we need bodies we need bodies and and uh we ended up you know really scaling not putting in place the right managerial structure not putting in place uh you know the accommodating constructs that would that would help you know um you know help these teams be productive and so in the early stages of the business we actually had a little bit of a cultural crisis where um the too many people coming in they weren't getting acclimated to the culture of the business so you had too many different cultures hitting each other and, and conflicting um we had uh you know um, not a sufficient structure that gave people an opportunity to optimize their work as a result the great engineers just got annoyed they're like yeah. i'm never going to be productive here so they leave the less great engineers stick around because they don't necessarily um see productivity the same way as the great engineers and you end up with a relatively mediocre team that is that is um you know bleeding and that uh that now it's become even harder and harder to hire into and so we did a reset um we were in this place for maybe a year and then we did a reset and said this isn't working we have to re we have to restructure the engineering organization we have to build uh levels we have to recognize uh, the talent you know the engineers have and give them the opportunity to grow and we have to start introducing some level of managerial oversight and so um we actually brought in Matt Hoffman who is with me at M13 now um to help us and I worked hand in hand with him to help essentially rebuild the culture of the organization from the ground up uh build out the managerial structure and the way that we want to approach um engineering as a whole and we spent the next 6 months really healing the organization and then rebuilding and hiring um at a higher level and i would say you know fast forward 6 months after we hit that critical point of crisis the culture of the organization literally didn't want 80 and the uh and the ability for us to hire and the ability for us to grow the organizations uh became much better and more importantly when people came in we started building a more efficient onboarding process we started um acclimating people to culture more effectively we started um you know getting people's work efficiencies uh you know to a much better place the whole business just started flowing in a in a much much better way and so um we yeah we So I mean the big learning was um and I've done presentations on this is yeah. as an organization grows you cannot expect to have exactly the same structure when you're 20 people to when you're 100 or even when you're 100 to when you're 250 you know the culture changes structure changes communication lines change you have to be proactive and set yourself up to be successful so that you don't hit these cultural crises when you are not equipped to handle the the volume of people the volume of work that's that's being undertaken. And with that Carl, reset can't be easy. I mean, it seems like such a uh, a strenuous process and getting to that, how did you go through okay, we're going to like reset I saying I'm saying in air quotes I guess right now. A, a reset of sorts. Like how do you do that from the ground up though? Like changing the entire culture of a company seems like a a very <laughs> a massive undertaking uh, on a more tangible level. Like what were some things that went into that? and how you're going to define like your values and everything else as as a culture massive undertaking but in retrospect a lot of fun <laughs> having said that not so much fun when you're going through it <laughs> yeah yeah but, but uh 
but I would say, you know, when I say cultural crisis, like cultural crisis, like, you know, we, we sat down, we were bleeding engineers. Every engineer that we were in awe of was giving their notice. And over a three-month period, we lost, you know, 30, 40% of our engineering team wow. um, that we had just hired in the last six to 12 months. So it was, it was literally, it was obvious. It was obvious we had a problem. And we literally had a, um, you know, come to my my friend but come to jesus type moment where we oh, yeah. sat down as a, as a as an executive team and just had it out and said because you know different people had different ideas and some of the ideas we we're implementing were just not working and so we just had it out and said listen we got to stop doing it this way this is not working it's creating this problem and it was truly a, a crisis moment and then at that moment uh we as a team agreed okay these people are going to own it this is we're going to create a plan. We're going to figure out how to solve this. And, you know, that's when we immediately were pushing to get uh, someone like Matt in. He's obviously incredibly good at this stuff. Yep. Um, and, you know, Matt came in, he worked under me and we, we worked together on this. And, you know, we literally pulled what was left of the engineering team into a open space and just sat with them, you know, for days, uh, just basically talking them through this is what we want to do. This is how we want to build it. This is what, and getting feedback from them, like, you know, how do we create an environment where you guys feel valued, where you guys feel productive, where you guys feel that there's a, you know, a growth opportunity. Um, and just really that level of communication just allowed us to navigate through and begin to reorganize, you know, tell us in your organization, who, who are the natural leaders? Who are the people that everyone listens to? How do we rally them and make them part of the solution rather than part of the problem? How do we then think about, you know, uh, career trajectories for people? Who, you know, who do we already have? Because all we had was engineers. We had no managers. Yeah. Who do we already have that has the capability to take a little bit more of a management role so that we weren't just bringing in people on top that were new and saying, hey, this is new, a new manager. So, you know, trying to figure out a really natural evolution and it, it didn't happen overnight. And it wasn't just the engineering team. We then also introduced things like uh, what we called AMAs, Ask Me Anything. So every Friday, um, I believe it was on Fridays, every Friday we did an AMA. Uh, we got the whole company together and we just created an open table of conversation where literally they could ask the executives any question they wanted. And, uh, you know, initially it's tough because there's, you know, tough culture and people are like, well, why don't I get this? Why don't I get that? <laughs> and and we, we figured it out and we talked to them. And, and I think, we had to rebuild those bonds of trust so that they actually trusted that we had their best interests at heart. And then with that, you're able to start getting people on side and you're able to start identifying, you know, the points of influence in the organization and the people that are the most impactful in the organization. And, and slowly it evolves into something that is, um, that is much stronger, but I, I'll go back and say, it's that trust. It's that moment of trust that changes everything. As soon as the organization has trust in leadership, then they will, they are much more kind of um, set up to, to, to accept and grow towards a, a better cultural environment. And that's, that's what we had to really focus on. One of the things that I really wanted to ask about because of your, your experience and looking at what you kind of do on a day-to-day -day basis as well is to talk about decision-making and and your own experience and even with the founders you're looking at, I mean, how can someone go about 
making better decisions, uh, being more thorough in their process, making decisions or, or anything around that, that you think would be helpful for other entrepreneurs? Because I mean, you literally you're doing investment decisions or you're doing decisions on building a team at M13 and you have had all this experience. Uh, I would be curious on your perspective on decision-making. Yeah. Um, this, being decisive is incredibly important leadership quality. Uh, I think the, the biggest failure in a lot of leaders is if you're unable to make a decision, you just leave the whole organization flapping in the wind, and that's just no good. Yeah. Um, I think the key, there's something I've heard a number of different times, and it really rings true to me. Mentors have said it to me. I've heard other CEOs say it. Uh, I think it re- actually probably originates with, with Bezos or someone like that, but it's two types of decision. You know, One decision is a decision that can be changed. And the other decision is a decision that is permanent. The decisions that can be changed, make them quickly and you know, be ready to pivot if they don't go right. They make those decisions quickly. Those decisions you should not linger on forever because you, know, you need to keep the organization moving. Yeah. Decisions that can't be changed, decisions that are permanent, that affect, you know, have a permanent impact on the organization or on the environment, those decisions are the ones you take more time on. Those are the decisions you focus on really understanding and really um, getting a clear point to, to ensure that the first time you make that decision, um, it, is, you know, it is clear and it is the right decision. Uh, I will say the mix of very good information and data alongside a good gut feel, um, I think you have to trust that. You have to trust your gut. Again, the, the decisions that can be changed um, you should trust that and follow that gut and make that decision and then track the outcome and be ready to pivot that decision if necessary. Having said that, you also have to be careful that you're not just flip-flopping all the time. <laughs> you have to make sure you give decisions the right amount of time to be successful. You have to make sure that you're, you, know, you go into every decision understanding what your expectations are um, and make sure those expectations are realistic because often you know, I've seen CEOs making decisions, expecting the world, getting 80% of the world, being disappointed, and then saying, I'm going to change that decision, and then everything going into, you know, into kind of flip-flop state. And so just having clarity on that, you know, the clarity of decision-making is just such a powerful tool for leadership. Um, so having clarity on that is really important. And on that note as well, Carl, then with this decision-making in mind, how are you looking at investments you actually are making for for m13 these companies you're investing in what are some components of of what you're looking for in these companies yeah um we have a philosophy that ideas these days it's not like maybe it was 20 years ago but ideas are somewhat a dime a dozen you know whereby 20 years ago if you were first to market that was such a big advantage because you know, you had a new idea and you were able to kind of develop that idea before anybody else had the opportunity to build against it. Today, no matter what you're doing, if you have an idea that's that's valuable, I guarantee there's five other people out there trying to play with it as well. So execution <laughs> is really the key. So outside of all the basics of, you know, market understanding, opportunity recognition, all the things that relate to making sure that this is a business that you really think there's a there's a future opportunity for from a value perspective. The most important thing is who's the team, how are they going to execute, how are they going to work together, who are the founders. Um, and it's not just that they need experience, you just need to believe in them. So we have some founders that are young, first-time founders that we just think are incredibly smart and talented. 
and we have some founders that have proven and you know had some big outcomes in the lot in the in the past years and are coming to do their next thing and you know that that combination first and foremost that you can really believe in the founders and more importantly you know it's a marriage so you you get along and you can work with the founders uh, i think that's probably the most important component outside of the table stake stuff of is it a good business does it have a good business model you know all of these other things um one thing to be careful of that that i've noticed and i've learned obviously i've really only been investing for a couple of years now but definitely a, a great learning curve for me but one of the things that i've really recognized is like really i've really tried to avoid the you know big shiny object syndrome <laughs> where something is hot and everybody's all over it and everyone's trying to throw money and the valuation's going through the roof and everyone's like we got to be in this we got to be in this but then when you peel back the onion you fundamentally look at the business you're like but the business model doesn't make sense like the fundamentals aren't bad you know how this company doesn't have a pathway out of loss making it doesn't have a future state where it's going to be actually healthy um and we've i've seen that a few times and uh and i think that it you know if you peel the onion back and go back to fundamentals and understand not necessarily where the business is today but the vision of what it can become and what the business model is around that that also has been very valuable for me to really understand where where real opportunities are and Carl, people are probably aware of some of the typical uh, questions or things that people are asking around founders in terms of their market and their TAM, things of that nature. But when you're looking at a founder, you mentioned some founders really just kind of get you excited about them as people as well. Like, What are some of those questions you're asking founders to figure out if this is going to be a founder themselves that you're excited to back? It's, you know, it's, it's unique and difficult to frame. As like, yeah. oh, this is a single feature. I, I can think of some of the founders we've invested in. And I, I just see, you know, they're inspiring. They have vision. They have the ability to communicate their vision. Communication is definitely very, very important. They have to be able to sell, you know, what they dream about, what they think about, um, you know, and, and they're able to, to, they're very agile. They're able to evolve. They're able to, to you know, for us, at least, it's very, very important that we don't have someone that's as stiff as a board. The whole value we provide is is our ability to tell people that they may not have seen something and that they need to consider something else and that they, that maybe there's a different way to think about things. And we need to work with people that are uh, that are able to kind of process that. And so for us, the ability to take in outside information and, and evolve and develop and grow is incredibly important. Uh, as I said, the passion and the vision and the commitment and the energy they bring to the table is very important. And then, and then fundamentally, you know, no founder has every skill on the planet, but what is the skill that makes this particular founder special? Or what is the skill that makes this team of founders spe special? Like, you know, you have someone who's just one of the greatest engineers of all time, another person who might be the best salesperson you've ever met before. You know, those little skill sets, as you put them together, you begin to patch together the things that you believe are going to make the company work, make the company successful. And if the skills match the model, then that becomes a really interesting kind of uh, combination of, of uh, ingredients in terms of what could make a great company. Carl, in the last two years, you, you've been investing, obviously, before that, being on the operating side of things. For anyone interested in getting into the, the world of venture capital, I mean, what are some things they should think about before doing that or any advice you would tell them as well? Yeah, I will say that I, I'm a true believer in um, 
in operating experience. I I do think that there's very very good investors who have been investing, you know, from the ground up and have just built an incredible uh, ability to kind of understand businesses and, and navigate investing. But I, I would say that at least my journey in terms of really having been exposed to the other side and having empathy for for the other side, for the you know, for the founding side, for the business side, I just think that adds so much value to the what you how you can help these companies and how you actually communicate and work with other founders. So I've always doesn't have to be an extensive amount of operating experience, but I've always really respected people that have gone out there and tried to operate and work, execute themselves, and then come back and even if they're better investors than they are operators, at least understand the challenges that uh, the founders are facing. And I found that even in the businesses and the venture firms I've been involved with. Um, whenever a, a venture partner or, or an investor rather has operated their approach and the way they talk about business and the way they think about the nuances is very, very different to an investor that has always been an investor and thinks much more in a kind of, um, numbers, you know, dollars and cents type, type approach to, uh, to investing. So, uh, operating some level of operating experience and exposure to, the environment that you want to invest in, I think is just one of the most valuable things that someone who wants to become a great investor should try and focus on in the early parts of their career. And another thing too, I know we talked about this a bit already with the team building, but how are you looking at building your team itself at, at M13? Obviously you have like a world-class team of a variety of people and I know you're looking for a partner as well on the launchpad side of things, but how are you looking at building your team at M13? Uh, yeah, so our team is is obviously um, pretty top heavy. It's it's a lot of very experienced people. We do have a very a really solid layer of of uh, people that are supporting um, you know that talent as well. So uh, you know, there is a mix. Um, but as we build our team, I mean, we really we owe it to our portfolio to build an absolutely best in class team. You know, if we have kind of uh, deficiencies anywhere in our team, then then that reflects pretty significantly on the type of support and help we can provide to our portfolio. So we very much focus to, on, on industry leaders. We very much focus on experience, uh, both failed and successful, but you know, usually a combination uh, is, is important. But we, we really focus on where have they been, what have they done, you know, what experiences are they drawing from that, that perhaps our founders have not had. Um, and, uh, and what we've done is, you know, obviously we built a framework of the type of things we want to support on and we're, we're filling in kind of the gaps and the vertical gaps that we have to make sure that we're able to cover, you know, the key requirements of any company that's in a growth stage, uh, whether it's driving growth or kind of managing the impact of growth on a business. So that's how we focused on the functional components of, of the team we're building. But from the individual standpoint, it is really um, you know, based upon experience, capability, you know, what's, what's the knowledge they bring. Another key factor that, that has been pretty consistent so far is we've really, obviously we've focused so heavily on our internal culture, um, yeah. you know, with people like Matt on our team, like that's a clear part, clear natural skill that we have that, that we think is just incredibly important. And we want to reflect, um, to our companies and our founders, you know, best in class culture, best in class operating such that it's something that they could potentially emulate or learn from. 
Um, so we built a really incredible culture in that regard. Most of the people in the partnership have worked together before or have known each other for years. Um, you know, we have a pretty good embedded relationship. It's a very uh, cross-functional and collaborative environment because we work so well between the investing partners and the operating partners and different people flowing in and out of, of different portfolio companies. And so it's really around that kind of fluidity and how do we build the partnership in such a way that we're consistently adding to the fluidity rather than creating, you know, um, too much, uh, you know, too many hurdles in terms of the dynamics between people. So that's, that's kind of a lot of the way we think about the team and how we're building it. Yeah. And one of the things I always like to ask that founders and uh, investors now as well, even just with the state of, of startups and, and investing, how it can be so all consuming, how do you recharge? How do you step away? Oh, uh, well, something I actually never had before when I was building businesses is family. Um, I uh, have two young daughters who are incredibly special. It's actually changed my whole uh, philosophy on work, whereby I used to be, you know, pretty much on 24 hours of the day and, and you know, you work long hours and kind of that's the priority and that's what you focus on. You yeah. know, now my priority is, you know, making my daughter's breakfast, taking my daughter to school, you know, giving them baths at night, tucking them in. You know, these are all the things that really drive me and, and give me those moments of complete separation from, from the work world. And, um, and they're sacred to me. So uh, what's really valuable is just the ability now. It's funny how you always think you never have enough time in the day until you have kids <laughs> and then you realize how much time you had. And yeah. so now, though, it causes you to be so much more efficient about how do I structure my day? How do I get the things done that I need to get done uh, such that I have that sacred time that I can spend with my children? And that's really been the, the best escape for me. And whatever I you know, even my weekends now are more dedicated to spending time with children rather than just consistently catching up work. I've always got little things I got to do and I'll take, you know, a couple hours here and there to get those done. But, you know, my schedule is oriented around the time I'm spending with family. And so that's definitely been very, very cathartic for me. Not everybody has family, so yeah. not everybody has that same outlet. Um, uh, and it's tough. I think whatever it is, whatever your vice is, like, you know, people should take the time. It's, uh, it is, inc it's incredible how important, uh, being healthy and in your best, in your best form is every day. Like, you know, you walk in and you have positive high energy and you're, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're making decisions and you're driving impact. You know, that's recognized by everybody around you. And so it's just so important to maintain that and, and keep yourself in that state. And when you're young, you don't necessarily think about that. And sometimes you get away with it because when I was young, I, I went out late at night. I did this and the other. I was working first thing in the morning, but you know, I was young. I had way more energy than I even have today. And I, I was always kind of on for different reasons because I just had the youth to support that. But as you develop and grow, you have to find more and more balance, I think. And on that note, Carl, how do you kind of structure your day now and prioritize uh, at this kind of current, <laughs> obviously we're in COVID now, at this current state, like how do you kind of do that with having a family of two young daughters? Yeah, I mean, um, working from home has not been always the easiest thing to do. <laughs> but uh, but uh, luckily, you know, I've, I have my own space, I have my own office in my house, so I, have, I am able to get away most of the time. And 
and my daughters are in school now. So I do have kind of my day is pretty open and free. And so um, in terms of how I manage family life, I have my my hours that I'm committed to work. And then I have, you know, my hours that I, I keep sacred for, for the children. I try to, you know, stay very diligent on that separation. Um, I will say in terms of just general organization, I mean, as you can imagine at this point, I'm just inundated constantly with with being pulled left and right. And um, I'll give a shout out to uh, Marie, who is my <laughs> absolute best supporting mechanism in life, uh, just really helps me kind of manage and coordinate all the all the asks and all the pull and keeps me really uh, focused on the things that matter. So everybody needs a Marie in their lives. And, and uh, Marie is my, my executive assistant. She's uh, awesome. So shout out to Marie. Props to Marie. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. I think everyone yeah, does need that. I am very familiar at this yeah. point, <laughs> and she has been very helpful in making things like this happen. Uh, Carl, what's the easiest way for uh, startups or anyone who wants to get in touch through that crazy schedule that you mentioned uh, with M13? What's the easiest way for them to get in touch? Yeah, I mean, uh, listen. If it's you know, obviously the easiest way is to to actually write into a particular partner. And for, for me, you know, I'll put it out there. My email is. Uh, uh, Carl K A R L at m thirteen dot co. You can also connect through LinkedIn. Um, but if you know people want to reach out, then they're welcome to reach out. And you know, uh, obviously, I always try and make as much of an effort as possible to respond to everybody. But um, but uh, feel free, feel free to reach out and happy to chat and happy to see if there's things that we can work on together. I can help or investment opportunities or or whatever it might be. Awesome, Carl. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Great chatting again. I look forward to the next one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. You want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.